We welcome you guys again to our, our second uh, Sandlot worship service. Um, good to see some new faces from uh, from last time, as well as some people who also came last time. And um, um, while we're in the Sandlot, I'm starting a new tradition. In fact, it's it's actually resurrecting an old tradition. It's a tradition I used to have when I was on InterVarsity staff, which is that I um, I used to tell stories about uh, my kids and Avila in particular, Avila stories, and these stories um, were not of a particular spiritual quality or moral quality, you might say. Um, you might say that they had nothing to do with what I was going to say that night, but I just thought that they were funny. And so uh, I, I wanted, we started with a, an Avila and Nora story last time, I want to start with one tonight. So, um, so this one comes from uh, October 5th. 2011 and so Avila was uh, four and uh, she and I were playing pirates on the bed and uh, Carissa was sitting there against the bed post, bed post and, uh, and Avila asked um, she said um, you know mommy do you, do you want to join you want to play pirates with us and, uh, and Carissa said uh, no thanks A.V. I'm feeling too tired for that today and Avila replied that's okay you can just be one of those weak pirates. You can be a pirate who just sits there and doesn't do anything. So that's the end of that story. I warned you that there's no moral or spiritual content here. You didn't believe me. All right, here's another story. All right, so um, Carissa was encouraging uh, Nora to fall asleep one night um, and uh, one of their favorite lullaby, lullabies when uh, when they were younger. This was uh, this is Oct uh, October 2013, so Nora would have been four. And uh, one of their favorite lullabies was this song, "Prepare the Way." You know, "Prepare the Way, Prepare the Way of the Lord." That song, right? So, um, Carissa was encouraging Nora to fall asleep by coming up with her own words to that song. And it's a real simple song, and, and just singing those out. And so Nora started singing aloud. She said. Um, Jesus, you keep everything from getting ruined, but sometimes you chop down trees to build beds and houses and stuff. <laughs> and she's, she was breaking out in song like that for a while. And then uh, she, she paused to explain to Carissa, because mom, people have to have beds and stuff. And, and sometimes the bed needs ladders when they're bunk beds. That's it. Like I said, no spiritual or moral content. Whatever you're using today. Tune in next week for a fresh Avila and North Story of the week after that. So um, this wind is, is a little bit bad on my microphone, but I think the mic is important. on the first two values that are a foundation for everything. Uh, the glory of God and cross-shaped love. And I told you that I sensed that these Sandlot gatherings were a good opportunity for the Lord to remind our church who we are and what are the things that we care about. And I told you a little bit of the backstory about um, coming to these ten core values and where they came from. Really, there were three sources. The first is uh, that it came out of 
me and Carissa's time on InterVarsity staff, just what we learned from doing campus ministry and building friendships with the students and seeing the ministry uh, grow. The second uh, place where these values came from was between uh, uh, the halls and the bodos. When we went to seminary, um, we our houses were literally right next to each other, and we shared the same backyard. And so the kids would play out on the swings all the time, and we'd hang out back there and stuff like that. And um, we started gathering about nine months before we came down here to plant this church to pray every week um, and uh, to just spend time with the Lord and to talk about what we felt like he was revealing to us in prayer and in the word. And so these values came from that. And then also, once we arrived in Tallahassee, we gathered this team of about 35 people or so. Some of you were part of this, uh, this core team, this launch team that we originally had that we met with for like nine or 10 months before we launched this church. Um, and as we talked and prayed and read scripture together, we realized that these were 10 core values that we kept coming back to in different ways. So these values are um, the glory of God and cross-shaped love. That's what we looked at last week. And then these are the key ones for tonight. Dependence, so there's both vertical and horizontal dependence, shared mission, the lost and the least, and beauty. Follow next time by diversity, authenticity, discipleship of the mind, and three streams. So over the course of these Sunday nights in the Sandlot, uh, we've decided to split up these ten values into a three-week interactive series. And tonight is the second installment uh, on values. Uh, and we're going to look at values three through six. Dependence, shared mission, lost and least, and beauty. Can you share that? Can you say that with me? Dependence. Shared mission, lost and least, and beauty. And I want to start tonight by asking you to turn your neighbor or spin your chair around. Um, and uh, I'm going to give you two minutes for a quick warm-up question. Which of these values are you surprised made the list? Dependence, shared mission, lost and least, or beauty? So just a quick warm-up, icebreaker question. So let's come back together. <laughs> and uh, we're just going to do a little bit of interactive teaching on values three to six. So first, let's talk about dependence. All right. So um, uh, not every value uh, may sound strange to you, but I wonder if this one does. Because in part, I think we place such a high value on independence in our culture. And that's actually a good value, too, in its place. Um, but as Christians, we don't need to shy away from the biblical teaching on dependence. We're not called to a life of self-reliance. As Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do some things. No. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, for the Christian, there are two dimensions of dependence. So there's the vertical dimension, our dependence upon God, and then there's the horizontal uh, dimension, our dependence upon one another. Dependence upon God is simply acknowledging that we need God. Right? We need you, God. You don't need us. We need you. Yes. Will someone turn to Psalm 124? And uh, if you don't have a Bible out or a Bible app out, that would be good. So we're going to look at some passages tonight. Would somebody turn, turn to Psalm 124? And I want you to stand up. Uh, maybe somebody would be bold enough to stand up and read aloud for us. Psalm 124, verses 1 through 5. 
Yeah, go ahead, John. Will you take your mask off when you read it to us? All right. Thank you. Psalm 124, a son of a son of David. If it, not, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, that Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the way to Blessed be the Lord who has not given us that plague to their teeth. All right, all right, that's good. That's good. You can stop there. Thank you. Um, so if it had not been for the Lord on our side, let Israel now say he's like coaching them. He's like cheerleading this, this value for dependence in the people of Israel. In other words, even Israel's most celebrated, most powerful king, most powerful political leader realizes that if it hadn't been for God, he and all Israel would have stood no chance against their enemies, right? That's what he's saying. Bible scholar Ken Bailey refers to this as, quote, a theology of need. And these kinds of dependent expressions run throughout the scriptures. This theology of dependence, we find it's axiomatic for Jesus. He said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Children are dependent, right? They don't know how the peanut butter and jelly sandwich got put in their lunchbox. They just know that it's there, right? He says that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who bring themselves low to the ground, those who acknowledge that the Lord is over them. Even concerning his own life and ministry, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. John 5, verse 19. And likewise, as we said, he told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, as a church community, we need to make sure that this message sinks down deep, right? Because without dependence upon God, incarnation will never really bear any real lasting kingdom fruit. One expression of this spiritual dependence for us as a community is intercessory prayer, is praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, praying for his purposes, asking him to do what we can't do. You are all welcome to come every week to Fire by the Altar, our Wednesday prayer meeting that goes from noon to 1 p.m. Right now it's on Zoom. Um, but that's just a great place for us to pray for God's purposes in our lives, to pray for one another, to pray for his kingdom purposes in this church. Before COVID, there were people who gathered to pray for an hour before every Sunday service. And that's a, a practice we hope will pick back up. This culture of prayer is also important for all church meetings, every pastoral meeting, every vestry meeting, every missional community leaders meeting. We need to be expressing to the Lord, it's not by our plans, it's not by our cleverness, it's not by our might, but by your spirit. By the Spirit, says the Lord. Now, in addition to this vertical dimension of dependence, there's also a horizontal dimension because we're interdependent upon one another. In ministry and in Christian life, the eye can never say to the hand, I don't really need you. Right? I, don't re I don't really need you for this one. We're united by our common union with Christ. We're his body. So we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice, 
to mourn with those who mourn. The earliest disciples even shared their possessions with those who had need, right? Now, what does this look like for us? I've loved seeing how people have bubbled up together during the pandemic, right? Have sort of uh, become family with one another during this time. How we've brought meals to new mothers and helped one another move. How we've hired one another for odd jobs, especially people who are looking for work. And how we've even shared mercy money with those in need. All of this is Christian interdependence on display. And we show our independence by always leading in teams as well. That brings us to our next value for shared mission. So that's our fourth value on our list of 10. Now you've probably heard of this 80-20 principle in church that, um, that uh, what, what is it? Uh, the idea that most churches in our country, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people, right? Um, and I, I actually think that that's a little skewed. I think it's probably more like 90-10, right, for most places. And that, that's across the board, right, regardless of denomination. And I think this is a big reason why our churches are shrinking. The eye cannot say to the hand, um, sorry, excuse me, the eye and the hand cannot do the work intended for the entire body, neither can a couple of priests be responsible for all the ministry in the church, right? Back when Carissa and I were doing campus ministry, I remember it used to shock pastors and church leaders when they learned that we had like a dozen small groups and, uh, that were going on and we were only leading one of them. Uh, we didn't even show up for the others. They're like, well, what, what happens there, right? They didn't understand that. That students were organizing prison ministry and local efforts to the poor. That with a little coaching, student-led teams were planting ministries on new campuses, right? The student, uh, the student volunteers organized apologetics events attended by a thousand people at FSU. Not only that, but students were discipling students and looking to their more mature peers as mentors in the faith. This is the way that it's supposed to work, guys. These students, men and women, black, white, Latino, Asian, were living out their priestly call to be a light to the world. And that's exactly the way that we want it to be at incarnation. In Ephesians 4.12, Paul clarifies that the role of pastors is not to do it all themselves, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You set the table, you equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we would like all of you to find a ministry at incarnation, a way of using your gifts for the kingdom of God. And if you don't have one, I hope that you'll begin praying to the Lord and asking him, how do you want me to serve? What is it I can do? How can I use my gifts in this community? All right. Value number five. It sounds weird to say that lost and least is a value for us. But turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15, verses 8 through 10, the parable of the lost coin. The parable of the lost coin. Now notice that there's rejoicing in heaven over, over what was lost being found. Not just rejoicing on earth, not just the woman, but rejoicing in heaven and among the angels. The lost are valued by God and by his son. Jesus said elsewhere that the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's how he summarized his mission, right? So he valued the lost. And the thing that strikes me in this passage 
is not the parable itself, but instead the occasion for the parable in verses 1 or 2. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they're scandalized by the way that Jesus operates, right? Because he's eating with and dwelling amidst sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, right? So they're having a problem with it. They think there's something wrong with this guy, right? So in order to teach them something about true spiritual leadership, Jesus tells them this parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, right? To, to, exemplify, to, to explain to them what kingdom leadership is supposed to look like. Consider the stark contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees in the gospels. The Pharisees' leadership is separational, right? So they, they only eat with and build friendships with people who act like them and believe like them, right? Otherwise, you're unclean. But Jesus' leadership is incarnational. It's not separational. It's incarnational. Even though he was sinless, he freely interacted with women, even prostitutes. He also stayed at people's houses. He attended weddings. He wasted time with children, right? He was so willing to associate himself with the lost that he himself was accused at one point of being a drunkard and a glutton, right? They called him that. They're like, man, John the Baptist was like harsh and very like ascetical and stuff like that. But you're, you're like, you're just like a party guy. <laughs> like what's going on with you? You can't be holy. In the opening sentences of his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, and he, direct, he directly links the call of the Christian to Jesus's ministry among the lost and least. He says this, he says, for this cause he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian too belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. That's our calling. That's our calling, guys, to be in the world, but not of the world, to be in the thick of foes. I know I can easily find myself in this comfortable Christian bubble, identifying more with the Pharisees than with Jesus. But we have to fight against this separational tendency of the Pharisees and learn to imitate Jesus' incarnational presence in the midst of the lost and least. All right, the last value we're going to discuss tonight is beauty. Now, does anybody here tonight who, who hasn't heard me ask this question before know who the first person in the Bible is who is described as being filled with the Spirit? Does anyone know? The first person in the Bible described as being filled with the Spirit. Any guesses? What, what's your guess, Benjamin? Samson? That's a good guess. No, not Samson, yeah. Cassidy? I don't know the name, but it was like a craftsman. Yeah, she said, I don't I don't know the name, but it was like a craftsman. That's right. So I'm gonna show you guys. So Exodus 31, verses 1 through 5 is very early in the Bible. These people are getting filled with the spirit real early in the Bible, aren't they? Yeah. All right, Exodus 31, 1 through 5. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, 
with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise. What's the reason? What's the reason he's been filled with the spirit to devise artistic designs? That's what it says. He was filled with the spirit to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Now, be honest. How many of you guys knew that this artist, Bezalel, son of Uri, was the first person in scripture who just was described as being filled with the spirit? Right, we might, we might, maybe we knew, maybe some of us knew he was an artist, but it's even, it's even hard to keep his name in our mind, right? But we should know his name, shouldn't we? Like, this is, this is an awesome distinction to be this first person. And why would God fill these tabernacle artists with the spirit unless he just, he just valued beauty? Right? He said, there's something about myself that's shown forth when things are beautiful. When things are profound, that says something about me. Similarly, we might ask, why else has he made creation so beautiful? I mean, look at this. Look at this beautiful tree. Like, it's about to turn into an ent in, like, Storm Isengard. Come on, anyone? Two towers. I mean, this is a beautiful oak tree. Look at this live oak. Do any of you guys enjoy watching those Planet Earth? type documentaries. Now, I love that stuff. And I think one of the most striking things is that throughout human history, many of the like most majestic locations and the most exotic creatures have actually like almost never been seen by human eyes. Like they spent almost like our entire human history like completely unseen by human beings. Like why would that be the case? Why would there be these beautiful things that we've never seen? Well, just because God is the master artist and he just likes to do beautiful things. We, we, you know, we invent these high-powered telescopes and we look deep into space and they're just such beautiful things that come up. So at Incarnation, we value beauty because our creator values it. And I would say that among Protestants, the Anglican church has always placed a particularly high value on beauty and on the arts, producing wordsmiths like Shakespeare and George Herbert and Dorothy Sayers and T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and hymn writers like John Newton and Charles Wesley and architecture like St. Paul's Cathedral, right? These beautiful things, these beautiful works of art testify to the glory of God. All right, so that's it for this week. Dependence, shared mission, lost and least, and beauty. And next time, when I come back from my travels, we'll get into diversity, authenticity, discipleship of the mind, and three streams. Uh, but before we close out with some more music, I'm going to give you two questions, and I want you to turn back with your neighbor. And the first question is, what's one thing that struck you in the talk about these four values? What just, what's one thing that spoke to you? And the second is, which value do you think that God is especially calling you to embrace on a deeper level, and why? Okay? What's one thing that struck you, and what's one thing that God might be calling you to embrace on a deeper level?